So we are into this series called I'm Tired, and lots of you have said to me, yes, that's me, I'm tired, and you've heard me say back to you, and it's also me, I'm tired a lot of the time. And we've talked about a lot of different things, and of course, as we've gone through the series, we we really have been trying to talk about some of the lies that we believe that help inform the choices that we make and are actually either lead us into or are complicit with the experience of tiredness. We're trying to talk about these spiritual realities that that form us and direct us in how we engage with life. And this morning, we really want to delve into the topic of relationships. Now, when I'm talking about relationships, I'm not specifically talking about uh, romantic relationships or work relationships. I'm more talking about our relationships with each other as Christians, uh, but certainly some of this will apply to it. And I think there are two lies that we sometimes believe, and sometimes we believe both of these, and it really informs how we pursue relationships and I think leads us into realities of relational tiredness. The first is that we believe, and this is a prominent American belief, We believe that we don't need relationships, right? It's the first lie we believe. It's kind of the the rugged individualism of American culture and persona. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have everything we need. I can take care of myself. I don't need help from anybody. Many of us buy into that, either overtly or subconsciously, and it, it affects us. The second lie is kind of on the other end of the spectrum that we sometimes believe, and that is that I get my identity from my relationships, right? That I get my identity from my relationships so that I feel good about myself or feel validated or experience some level of core security, significance, and acceptance because of my relationships. And what I want to suggest to you is both of these lies are rooted in the issue of pride. It's all about me when I approach relationships. And they're also deeply crippling to experiencing true life and rest that comes out of relationships. And therefore, when we give in to these two lies, it often ends up either in the tiredness that comes from dismissing the importance of others or the tiredness that comes from constantly pursuing the affirmation of others. I think the gospel speaks directly to these realities. And I think for us this morning... There's one particular passage in the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 2 that we kind of want to nestle into and hear the Apostle Paul speak some truth to our hearts. Now, admittedly, this passage in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul is attempting to primarily uh, establish his authority as an apostle, as someone to be followed, to be trusted, uh, to be believed. But within that, part of his proof, as it were, or evidence, is this idea of his relational fidelity and his relational investment. And I think it will speak to us profoundly if we give it space. So let's listen to this. First Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to start at verse 1. Paul writes, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. 
For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to, to trick you or flatter you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Another translation of young children is we were gentle amongst you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, listen, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were amongst you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each other as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. I think there's something interesting that's going on in this passage, and I think perhaps we could summarize it this way. That is that the gospel necessarily leads us into relationships. And Christian gospel-centered relationships, those are important uh, qualifiers, necessarily lead us into the gospel. Got it? The gospel necessarily leads us into relationships. And Christian gospel-centered relationships, just because they exist in the church doesn't mean they're truly Christian and gospel-centered, necessarily lead us into the gospel. And for me, those two truths cut the two lies we spoke about earlier right at the knees. So let's talk about the first thing, that that the gospel necessarily leads us into relationships. Paul says, we we, we loved you so much, we wanted to not only share the gospel with you, but also, he says, our lives as well. The word for lives is the Greek word suke. It's his breath, our essence, our, our true selves, our, our everything. We wanted to be amongst you and be with you, to be accepted by you and to accept you. Paul says there's this natural connection between a true foundational belief and trust in the gospel and the ability to connect and relate one to another. Now, the lie exists that I don't need relationships. And there are many reasons that sometimes kind of work behind the scenes to get after this, right? Perhaps the, one of the major ones is that I've been in relationships before, and they haven't turned out the way I wanted them to. They've hurt me. I've been vulnerable, and it's cost me something. I've been betrayed or cheated or, or, or been treated wrongly. And it would be somewhat natural as hum, human beings to say, therefore, I don't need any of this. I'm fine by myself. I don't need to take that risk ever again. Or or perhaps the second reason that leads us to say, hey, I don't need relationships is the belief that we need to prove ourselves, right? I need to demonstrate to everyone else that I am not dependent on anyone 
Because in this world, that's how I show my significance. Or perhaps thirdly, and there's going to be some resounding internal amens to this one, I think. Adam, you just don't know how busy my life is. There is not space for relationships. So in other words, we're saying there's other things I have to do that are more important. Therefore, it says I don't need relationships. I'm okay in what I'm doing. Or perhaps this is something that drives this. And I want to be careful on how I say this. And we'll talk about the very opposite thing in a few minutes. We'll be careful there too, hopefully. Sometimes we are driven to say I don't need relationships because of how we are wired. Right? In other words, I'm an introvert. And I want to say to you, God created you that way. He did it on purpose. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. That is not a judgment against you. However, it is not an excuse to not pursue relationships. We'll talk about that in a minute and what that means. But sometimes in our own wiring, I'm shy, I'm, I'm tentative, I, or I'm an introvert, or I, I gain my energy from being by myself. Those are all real and need to be understood and processed as you think about how you engage in this way. But they are not realities that should lead you to believe the lie that you do not need significant relationships in your life. Now, isn't it funny that Paul speaks against these things in this passage to the Thessalonians? He begins by starting by saying, listen, you knew how hard it was for us in Philippi, right? And certainly Paul's talking about some of the persecution and significant turmoil that he engaged because he was a missionary and a proclaimer of the gospel in new spaces. However, if you look at the whole life of Paul, his pain and suffering was not limited simply to opponents of the gospel. It also contained a wealth of people he considered friends or colleagues or people who he had invested in kind of breaking that or, or leaving that and moving on and hurting him. Think about the book of Galatians and the book of Corinthians. Here are two groups of people who Paul had formed meaningful connections with and relationships with, who he had to write difficult letters to because they basically had abandoned him and moved in other directions. So Paul has certainly experienced the physical pain of opposition to the gospel, but he's also experienced the very real emotional strain of relationships that haven't ended up how he expected them. And yet, he can still say, I want to share the, not only the gospel with you, but also my very essence, my very life. How, how could he trust people in that way when he'd been hurt before? And Paul, of course, is also speaking to the issue of time. Do you notice what he said in there? He said, you understand, Thessalonians, how we worked day and night so that we would not become a burden to you. You know what that means? It means that Paul was not just a missionary. He also had a full-time job, right? And it's what was called being a tent maker. Paul actually made tents, and so that when he was in new places, he had his own business. He was making tents and selling tents so that he could support himself to engage in the ministry there. So what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians is, I was a full-time missionary of God. I was also a full-time employee of, of Paul of Tarsus Incorporated, tent maker specialist, right, or whatever is going on there. And I wanted to share with you not just the gospel, but my very essence as well. 
So there's the sense in which Paul understands the busyness of life. And listen, you're also talking about a world without electricity, a world that had much shorter days and spans of time than we experience. Paul understands the real realities of, of time commitments and energy commitments, and yet he says that relationships are significant. And of course, he could say, listen, what do, who do I need people for? I met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and I've been commissioned as this great uh, apostle to the Gentiles, and I go and preach, and people, great things happen, and, and churches are started. I don't need anyone else. And yet he constantly uses words, not only here in 1 Thessalonians, where he says things like, I didn't come to you in pride. I didn't come looking for your affirmation. I didn't come say, I'm an apostle. You got to listen to me. I'm the important guy here. He said, I came as a child to you, right? That's the language he said. Or if you want to go with the other translation, I came gently to you. Is that Paul is not there to demonstrate his bona fides as a human specimen. He's there to be dependent on them in the same way they will be dependent on him. To exist in this very real Christian community that God had designed from inception. You ever wonder why we have a Trinitarian God? And yet we struggle to understand the necessity of relationships as people created in his image. Now listen, I have no proof, and therefore I'm not going to attempt to say that Paul was an introvert. I don't know, right? Or what he was wired. Was he naturally shy? Was he naturally bold? I have no idea, but there was some wiring that was going on within Paul, and he didn't use that as something to say, therefore I'm not going to do this other thing. So my natural question is, perhaps you're following with me, if he had experienced relational pain, if he was incredibly busy, if if he kind of was a significant person of himself, then why would he want to, with this new group of people in this new town, invest his very being, his very essence, not just his message, but himself with them? And I think the answer is what we said earlier, that the gospel necessarily moves us into relationships. That is, that the gospel leads to the discovery and the experience of the significance of meaningful relationships. Think about this for a minute. When you pause to actually consider someone, your heart naturally opens towards them. Ever experienced that before, right? People are just names in a newspaper or faces on a TV screen until you begin to hear their story, and suddenly your heart opens to them. My first ever class in seminary, we had to, uh, had to pick a, a people group that we've never heard of before and think about what would it mean for the gospel to go there. So I don't know why, but I picked the Azerbaijani people. If I ever end up there, you know why that happened, right? I picked the, I, I'm still not exactly sure where they are, somewhere near Turkey, Russia, somewhere over there. It's very small. But don't you know that as I studied them, that like the piece of my heart opens to them and to their culture and to who they are and to what need exists there. That is that because the gospel makes us deal with who we are, and if we're serious about bringing the gospel to other people, it necessarily stops us to consider them. And when we consider them, our heart is open to possibly love them, right? 
This is profound work of God in us. And Paul experiences this everywhere he goes, in every single stop. And then secondly, not only does the gospel open our heart to love, but the gospel also becomes the basis or the foundation to open our soul to genuine connection. Most anyone who writes about friendship, from C.S. Lewis to Ralph Waldo Emerson to books that you'll find in Barnes & Noble or on Amazon or somewhere, when they talk about real meaningful friendships, there is some kind of affinity or connection that forms the foundation for relationships. A great example is sports, right? You can go to a game and find thousands of fans of a team who are radically different kinds of people in their Monday through Saturday lives, but on Sunday, they're Eagles fans, or Giants fans, or Packers fans, or anyone else but Cowboys fans. <laughs> There's this scene from the movie Major League it's a, from, from the 1980s where the Cleveland Indians, who had been a losing team forever, uh, finally have this season where from out of nowhere they're they're going to make the playoffs, and it, and it moves to this bar scene in Cleveland, and there's these, like, biker dudes, this really hardcore leather and spikes coming out of them and mohawk kind of story, and these other, like, business guys in three-piece suits. When the final out is scored, they're, like, embracing and hugging each other because there's a foundation that brings otherwise different people necessarily together. And I want to tell you, if it could be sports then it also can and should be the gospel. And this is Paul's constant experience, constantly meeting different kinds of people, and the shared belief and reception of the gospel it becomes the basis for connection that otherwise would not exist between them. And then relationships grow out of it. So when your heart is opened to love and you're, soul is open to genuine connection, what you begin to experience, I think, in gospel-centered relationships is that your life now is open to experience care. And so what you have in Paul's experience with the Thessalonians here is him saying, I came to care for you like a father or like a nursing mother. He uses both examples. But he also says, and I came to you like a little child. In other words, so that you could care for me. The true and genuine Christian care is a both-ways experience. Unfortunately, all too often, our reality of care in our life is a one-way direction. We are either chronic receivers of care, or we are chronic givers of care. And I use the word chronic because all too often, when we are only receiving, we never attempt to give. And when we are always giving, this is often the case in churches, we are often unwilling to receive. And therefore, we get in this tired cycle of relationships that is what? All about me. And not about the give and take of gospel care that should be happening. Can I, can I tell you a hard but true truth? The Bible tells you time and time again, you cannot care for yourself. It's physically, spiritually, emotionally impossible. And you need to look no farther than the very beginning of the story when God creates Adam and says, hmm, it's not good for him to be alone, right? 
In other words, that humanity was necessarily created to exist in forms of community, not in isolation. And then if you want to go all the way to the New Testament, we have some 45, in excess of 45 times, where the New Testament writers use the phrase one another. In other words, implying that for these realities of true life to happen, caring for, loving, encouraging, uh, grieving, all of these things, for them to truly happen and for us to experience the life and rest that comes from them, they have to happen in a back and forth way. And here we have Paul, I think, and each place he goes, but certainly here in Thessalonica, experiencing once again the gospel leading him into the necessity of relationships. When Paul later finds himself in prison or difficult spaces, it will be the connections that he has made along the way that supports him and cares for him, that sends him money, that prays for him, that takes long journeys to see him in person to encourage him. This is a both-way reality. The gospel leads us necessarily into relationships. However, (laughs) relationships that are Christ-centered, gospel-centered, then also necessarily need to lead us to the gospel. And I think this truth strikes right at that second lie, right? That relationships are all about me because it's in my relationships where I find my significance, my status, my identity. And there's all kinds of reasons behind this too, isn't there? There's the fear of uh, of being alone. There's the fear uh, of being left out or of missing something significant. There's the, the belief that I need Lots of significant relationships so that in the status of being popular or, 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 or well-connected that I can be seen and validated as a human being. And all of these things lead into sometimes very shallow or perhaps even fake experience of true friendship. And I would say that can be an awfully tiring experience. And perhaps you've said that too or experienced it as well. And likewise, sometimes introversion can lead us into kind of being isolated or by ourselves. I would say sometimes how we're wired as extroverts can lead us into trying to find our identity and all of our connections and significance and acceptance and affirmation from people around us. But Paul portrays relationships in a distinctly different way. That is that they do not exist to affirm you. They do not exist to make you significant. They actually exist singularly, listen to me, singularly to point you right back to God. That is that Christian community should be so profoundly and radically different from relationships we experience in the world Because it is never about our usefulness to someone else or their usefulness to us, which always defines relationships in the secular world, but rather God's usefulness in me towards others or in them towards me in finding me, in restoring me, and in reconciling me. That God is the one 
behind relationships in a world that is constantly pointing at us, either accusatory, in an accusatory way, or in a self-infatuated way, relationships are actually meant to pull the finger away from ourselves and point it back towards God again through Christ. And Paul has this, this profound experience in these relationships. This is the things he says. We read this earlier, right? I did not come here in some episode of greed or pride, he says. I didn't come here saying I'm an apostle. I didn't come here for, for flattery, for your flattery. I didn't come here for you to say, oh, you're so great. We agree with everything you have, right? Have you ever been in relationship with someone who wants your advice, but they actually want your affirmation of their opinion, right? You've experienced that sometimes too. Paul says, I'm not here for your flattery. I'm not here for your approval. I'm not here for you to say, oh, you're so great. I'm here to point you toward the gospel, and I want you to have the courage to do the same thing for me. And he gets to it in that last verse, verse 12, when he says, so therefore I'm going to, to urge you and point you and comfort you even, even in our comfort, towards living the life that is worthy of God. This is a constant phrase that Paul uses in many of his letters, a life worthy of God. What he's talking about is a gospel-saturated life, a life that has so profoundly understood the gospel and embraced it that it is being trans transformed towards an orientation towards God rather than self. You see this? And Paul says, this is what relationships are supposed to do. Not to affirm us, not to fan our, our, our personal prideful flame, not to validate us as significant, not to secure us in our popularity, not to scratch our extroversion itch, but to constantly redirect our wayward hearts back towards God. And so I would say, if you are experiencing relational tiredness, then you are human, because we all are, right? We need to have a gospel-centered view of relationships that eliminates us in some way from the equation and says the gospel necessarily moves me towards connection with others. But in my connection with others, those relationships must move me towards the gospel. Otherwise, they are misguided. And can I say something? Er, we can, you can forgive me later. They may not even be worth it. Do you hear me? Especially if we're coming, in the, coming under the, the idea that we're Christian and gospel-centered relationships. If it's just to say how good everyone is, then we're somehow missing the boat on what's going on here. So let me say four things as we break away from this teaching. Four, four sort of pastoral riffs, if you will, in relationships as we think about what Paul has said here and the experience of tiredness in relationships. First thing is, if you are so busy that you're tired, I would suggest more than half of you would probably say, yes, that's me. Then can I tell you something? You need significant relationships more than everyone else. Because the world is discipling you and forming you in its image. And you need voices from the Lord who will form you in his image. If you are so busy in life that you're experiencing tiredness, I would say, I think the Apostle Paul would say, yeah, me too. 
And therefore, I need to share my very soul with these people. Otherwise, my soul could be in some level of danger. Perhaps not danger from eternal separation from God, but perhaps danger of continuing corruption of this world. Bill Hybels once wrote a book, Too Busy Not to Pray. Perhaps someone here could write a book, Too Busy Not to Connect, right? This is a very true gospel statement. The second is, second thing I would say is, we cannot rightfully hide behind labels. Introversion is not an excuse for isolation. An extroversion is not an excuse for the fear of isolation. Both of these are equally, decidedly, prideful dispositions. God made you who you are. Your introversion is real, and therefore you should have time to recharge and to be by yourself, but that should not mean a whole life that says, I don't need other people in it. And God made you who you are in your extroverted disposition. And he wants you to be gregarious and connected to other people. But that does not mean that your fear of not being significant should drive you in how you pursue relationships. Both of those are me-centered reality that I think doesn't allow the gospel to do its work in us. Third thing, you have a number. That is that there is a limit to the amount of significant relationships you can be engaged in. And our numbers aren't all the same. It's part of how God created us and how he is is sending us out to proclaim his glory to the world in our own wiring and disposition. But whether you are an extrovert and would be with people all day long or an introvert and would rather be by yourself all day long, there is a cap to the amount of meaningful relationships you can truly be engaged in in this gospel-centered way. And so we need to be intentional about how we're engaging in them. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was with people an awful lot, and yet he spent an awful lot of alone time, if you read the Gospels. Interesting. Jesus spent time with crowds, He spent time with followers. He spent time with the 12 disciples. And he spent time with his three kind of inner circle disciples. And what's fascinating to me is that if you read the Gospels carefully, it happened in a descending amount of, an increasing amount of intensity of time and personal investment. That is, yeah, he was with crowds for a little bit. But he was really with his followers. Yeah, he was with his followers a little bit more but he was really with his 12 disciples. And yeah, he was with his 12 disciples a good bit, but he really was with Peter, James, and John, preparing them for something. Why? Because everyone has a number. And that, friends, is why multiplication is essential to true discipleship. That is that the goal of discipleship was never one person invests in thousands, but one person invests in a few who then will in turn invest in a few, who then will in turn invest in a few. And as a movement of discipleship is started, which Jesus did intentionally, thousands of years later, there are millions of followers of Jesus 
because of a significant investment in 3 and in 12. We have numbers. Now let me leave with this. You remember the saying, it takes one to know one? It was always kind of a negative saying, right? You said something about someone that was mean, and they said, well, it takes one to know one. So let's make it positive. That is that in order for us to be truly gospel-centered in our relationships, we must have previously had a true experience of gospel-centered friendship. That we cannot achieve the things I'm talking about in and of our own effort. We have to have first experienced it. It's what Jesus would also say, hey, you, you can't love anyone unless you have first received the love of God. Isn't it fascinating that in John chapter 15, right as Jesus is about to experience the greatest amount of betrayal that any human heart could ever face, he says to his 12 disciples, all of whom will leave at some level, some of whom much more publicly than others, but all will desert him. He says to them something fascinating. You are now no longer servants, but you are my friends. And Jesus says something about friendship. And I lay down my life for my friends. And so it comes straight back to the gospel, doesn't it? That is that all of this that I've said is really just some self-help talk and really unhelpful. Unless you have truly experienced Jesus say to you, you're not just somebody out there. You're my friend. And here's how you know that you're my friend. I willingly have laid down my life for you. And said, this isn't about what you can do for me. This isn't about saying to myself, look how great I am. It's about the ultimate act of true, gracious, and merciful humility. That demonstrates to us the radical possibility of what Christian community could actually be. If we took Jesus at his word. Can I pray with you?